such a huge fan of today's guest, Jay Mullings. Jay is a multi-award winning screenwriter, poet, blogger, vlogger, musician, author, and voracious content creator. Brought up in South London and Jamaica by his mum and grandparents, his cultural heritage shines through all his work, though he doesn't see what he does as work. It's his joy and passion, and he aims to shake us out of our preconceived views of society. Despite being told as a student by one of his teachers that his writing simply wouldn't cut it, Jay has pushed on, and as he would say, kept his pen locked and loaded. In 2012, Jay founded Written Mirror Limited, his creative media company, to be a sandpit for all his ideas bursting forth, which he shares on a regular basis with his ever-growing band of dedicated followers across several social media platforms. I have a strong feeling Jay is headed for great things. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Well, I'm delighted to say that today sees me in Collier's Wood region, I think, with uh, going to be a good friend, I can tell, Jay, Jay Mullings. <laughs> good to have you on the show, Jay. Thank you for having me, Steve. No, uh, this that... is Merton Abbey, Abbey Mills, to be tell, exact. Tell us about Merton Abbey, because I am a North West London boy, born and bred, and I know very little about this part of the world. So where are we? Well, we're in Collier's Wood, and what's kind of really good about Merton Abbey is it has a market area. You have the, the pond, the, well, the Thames, really, that goes through here. You have a water wheel. So you kind of, and you've got like a nature walk on the other side. It leads to a few places from here. You can walk to Morden, you can get to Mitcham through here, and then obviously you can head back towards kind of Collier's Wood Two Inn. So you've kind of got a mix of shops, so commerce, water features, greenery and walks and it, shops. It is lovely and it is deceptive because the walk from here, from Collier's Wood to here, yeah. didn't give me any impression that we'd be in like a no. sort of rural type location. <laughs> I mean, you've got all the the retail parks and hotels and gyms and things and then you're in the middle of beautiful rivers and walks and things it's and, lovely and that's sort of a feature of the content i produce i try to find these places that not many people are going to and just you know because i like being in touch with nature but then i also like that this is kind of in between nature and commerce and then you've got like the traffic noise behind you it's good for picking up live sound yeah no it's lovely there is a little bit of background noise because we are sitting on a first floor terrace overlooking the river next to it. We're part of a pub. I don't even know what the pub's called. Should give it a shout out, really. We'll, we'll find out. Yeah, we will. We'll find, find out. out. But there's a bit of background noise, which um, hopefully won't upset listeners too much. So it's, it's great to be here and come Thank down and meet me. you. We got introduced um, through a very good uh, resource through yes. LinkedIn. It was Mark Shaw, I believe his Let's name is. Let's give him a shout out, Mark shout Shaw. Shout out to Mark Shaw. <laughs> <laughs> For connecting uh, podcast host and podcast guest. Exactly. It's a great service. Um, it's something that's been needed. Yeah, free uh, service. Yeah, really, exactly. So I'm I'm happy to have to have met a fellow Londoner, even though you yeah. support Spurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's get this out of the way first of all before there's any, any fisticuffs. We we've we've both had a, a good preseason. We've both had a good start to the yes. season over the weekend. Newcastle weren't up to much. Let's be honest. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon it was one of your lot that set on our lot, you know, because oh, Erzlin, the other guy couldn't play. No, I don't no. know if you, yeah. I know, and that's that's in round my neck of the woods in uh, Golders Green. They yeah. got attacked, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Bet yeah. they were Spurs fans. Outside right, of I'm Turkey, no, no. Right, let's, let me not get this out of context. I'll tell I'm you what: joking. if we want to get some of your players out, out, out at, uh, not playing with the first team, it wouldn't be Ozil. He's the least effective, I would imagine. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh. <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good burn. <laughs> no, that's cool. So, Jay, it's difficult to pigeonhole you as uh, in terms of what you do. I mean, I don't like to say to anybody what they are by what they do, because right. that, that's not a great thing to say. But in terms of what you do for a living and how you spend your time, you, you're involved in so many things from screenwriting. screenwriting to poetry to music to film production to blogging, vlogging. It sounds so much better when you say author. it. It does, isn't it? <laughs> and I forgot to say multi-award winning as well. <laughs> We'll, we'll give out that. all the various sites and social connections for Jay at the end. But So how would you describe yourself? So I've found the term content creator to, to put me at peace because it, kind of, it covers everything. Like As long as it's content, I can do it. So writing led me into, well, poetry led me into writing stories. Writing stories led me into screenwriting. Screenwriting led me into filming. Filming led me into audio and music. And it goes on and on. And they all kind of come under the umbrella of content and as a filmmaker I'm also good at photography and it got to the point where it would be confusing to sit down to someone so if I was in an interview setting for instance for a job and they go what are you good at creating content wise and I'll look at them and peel off all of these skills and they'd be looking at me like really no way like there is no person that can and I guess I'm blessed to 
I always feel inspired. And I don't know if it's maybe it's London that does this for me, where I'm just in this. It's in this this um area and this uh environment that just makes me want to go out and create and not not be happy or content to just deal with one content form is to really realize that storytelling encompasses pretty much all of, well i learned this in in university as well filmmaking and the, the arts kind of compass all of life there's a film about everything so that tells you all you need to know about it it's far-reaching there's a story about everything there's a book about everything you know, the arts are all encompassing. So it makes me sad when creatives try to pigeonhole themselves or they can't see the bigger picture that mm. there's more they can be doing. So that really is how my content has come about. Yeah. So how did you first, when did you first become aware you had an interest or a passion for creating? Let's, yeah. let's just call it being creative. <laughs> With Lego. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> As a child, I was... um I was always very intense with when I started something, I absolutely had to finish it. But then once I finished something, I wanted to try something new. So I went from puzzles to Lego to, you know, numbers and then words and writing and storytelling. And then it just it just keeps on going. I always like learning things and trying things. So I guess I was aware quite early that I was different from a lot of people. That and when it came to forming opinions, I was never someone who was content to be led I always was trying to form my own opinion and to do that I had to keep learning things and keep reminding myself that I don't know everything so I guess that's what's made me the so kind the of sort of kid who always ask why yes why and how and when and wanted to know certain teachers loved um, it other <laughs> teachers hated it I was always that guy I was always like yeah why why is it like this why is it framed like this why does it sound like this why this word why not that word even um, in my film, my film lecturers, they would tell me why a scene is set a particular way and, and why it had to be like, you know, they're playing chess. Why did it have to be this move? Oh, well, it had to be that piece. Why? Why did it have to be that piece? Mm. I, I was that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and even when we first met and I was setting up the equipment here, he's asking me, Jay, saying, well, what kit do you use and how do you use it? And what, what mics do you use? And let's try this. I haven't tried this one before. Are you on stereo or, or you know, mono? <laughs> I like learning things. I just like information and yeah. A lot of people get frustrated when someone is constantly asking them questions, but I was, I'd rather be the person that if I don't genuinely understand something, I'd rather ask you why, even if I run the risk of sounding stupid and asking you why sometimes I'd rather do that than pretend yeah, and silently go along. And so, yeah, yeah I've always been curious. Like is that. that something that was nurtured from your family, from your, from your family heritage and background, your parents or grandparents understand that an influence on you? My grandparents had the hugest influence on me. They were with me from the very beginning. Um, so I was born in London, mm -hmm. St. George's to be exact. So two in, not far from here. And then I grew up in Balham with my grandparents, my mom and my grandparents and my elder sister. And then my grandmother had an accident. She used to work for National Rail. She had a work-related accident. She had to retire early, essentially. She couldn't handle winters no more. They moved to Jamaica. We moved to Jamaica along the same time. And, you know, it ended up that I started living with them again a few years later after we moved back. You say they, they, you went back to Jamaica. They were originally from Jamaica. Yes, my grandparents are, are the, from the Windrush generation. Uh -huh. My granddad came over by boat. My grandma came over a year later by plane. Uh, I think the year was 66 and 67. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, basically, they went back. We went. We, I ended up living with them again. But my grandma was very much... Um, I was, I was speaking to you earlier about I've come across a lot of the Gary Vee content and he mm. speaks about his parents. My grandparents played, facilitated a similar role. My grandma was always on my side, always quite supportive, very good for my self-esteem. Mm. My granddad was quite the, the drill sergeant, the tough disciplinarian, and you kind of had to be very mindful of how you conducted yourself yeah. around him. He wasn't just going to allow certain things to run. He still had the energy then. <laughs> was that classic of sort of Jamaican heritage in those days for the for the mother to be very maternal and nurturing and the father? Yeah, um, boys were raised to be kind of tough and, mm. you know, but at the same time respectful and, and you know, um, the kind of maternal influence always used to come from the mother. Occasionally, it was the other way so around. So you got that like, really lovely balance. It was a, it was a very good yeah. balance, which I didn't always appreciate from my granddad. My granddad was, yeah, he was just really, really tough on me, but I'm glad he was because now I'm, I don't have any fear of missing out. I don't just blindly follow trends. I'm my own person. They help nurture that. Uh -huh. Fantastic. So just thinking of your school days as well, you said some, some teachers loved you yeah. asking questions and some didn't. <laughs> I'm just thinking because my wife until recently was a teacher in mainstream education. We got the teachers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and she's very keen on 
getting down to the kids' level and getting to understand them and not just teach them, you know, rote off the blackboard or whiteboard or whatever it is. Yeah. So did you find you you sort of veered more towards the teachers who understood you and you, you in the arts, for example, were they the ones in English and history, for example, were they the ones who supported you? So uh, some of my early problems with teachers were with English and maths teachers really? specifically. Uh -huh. Yes, maths teachers because they only... They were teaching, and I understood it, they were teaching for the, and this is meant with all due respect, for the slowest kids in the class. They're trying to bring them up to the level of, I was a, a kind of, I was very curious and very high achieving. So I was bored with that stuff. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go beyond. So if they gave you a textbook where you're meant to work specific pages, I'd finished the entire book. And I have nothing to do in the class. And they're kind of looking at me thinking, why are you not doing anything? And then they'll try and shame you into asking you a question. I knew the answer to the question. Yeah. It, it was very frustrating for yeah. them because they didn't know how to kind of discipline me in the class setting to get everyone else to fall in line. It was quite the opposite. Why you would came, they discipline you? <laughs> well, it's kind of to show that if, if this guy has to fall in line, everyone else has to. But yeah. if you ask me a question and I answer it, well, you know, the rest of the class just kind of go up in, in, right. in uproar and it becomes unruly. Yeah. <laughs> English teachers... Again, I had a very, very British accent when I first moved back. They didn't want to be corrected on, on you know, incorrect pronunciation and stuff. So again, we ran into issues there. Mm. It, was quite, it was quite challenging. But as I grew up, I never wanted to be in a situation with a teacher where even if I didn't like the subject matter, they could turn around and say I was a dunce or I was stupid. Or I, I made sure I did the best in the ones I didn't like, which is kind of weird, right? Like you'd think I'd only try my hardest in the subjects I liked. I tried even harder in the ones I didn't no, like. That's fascinating for a kid. I mean, a school kid to understand and have that awareness to, to bring yourself up to a level so you weren't shamed, for example, in, in the class or yeah. handing in crappy homework. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, can, I guess you can put that down to your your grandparents, you know, and their upbringing that you, and your mum who gave you that. Definitely. My, my grandfather was all about, you know... Um, you know, working hard and being disciplined. Mm. My grandmother was all about not losing your identity and just because you're young now, like her, her favorite thing to say to me was every day you get one day older and wiser. Every day she used to say that to me and it used to be amazing because I was like, ah, oh, I won't always be this little kid that everyone can tell what to do. Like one day I'll be able to kind of stand on my own. So it was, you know, I, I, I really look back with fond memories of my That's childhood. Fantastic. And did you have any inclination when you were at school what you want to do? You know, what do you want to do when you grow up, to use that <laughs> well-worn phrase? I wanted to replace Ian Wright. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to play centre-forward for Arsenal. <laughs> were you good uh, athletically at sport? Uh, I was, so, naturally good at most sports, but not very, uh, what, what's the word now? I wasn't as dedicated as the kids who really, really were good at them right. sports. I was just kind of like, it's naturally easy and fun. And I wanted to keep it that way. I was quite social with sport. So I did it to, as a way of, to extend the amount of time I could socialize with my friends. So in, in, when I went high school, you had different seasons. So you had cricket season, football season, track season. So whichever season that the best athlete from that sport was going to, we'd go and train with them as a way of kind of staying in the friendship, friendship loop. And then, you know, the idea was to at least be as good as so they could recognize and say, yeah, you're actually quite good. That would be good enough kind of thing. Yeah. So recognizing you weren't going to be the next Ian Wright. No. Or Thierry Henry. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you realistically think, what way your career was going to go? So my godfather is, um, is, was a barrister. Well, he is still a barrister. Uh -huh. um, he's a QC. And I grew up knowing that that's what he did. And he was always very cool and very kind to me. So I, at one point, I was pretty set on being a lawyer slash barrister. And then I kind of um, got uh, got wind of how long the studying took. And I was like, uh, I got to find something else. And then I kind of ended up with IT. Everyone was like, you know, with your level of smarts, go do computers. You know, uh, you go study a qualification. You, you know, you do some Cisco or whatever the, the qualification was at the time. Someone will hire you. They'll send you to Sydney because that's where all the jobs are. And you'll make 60 grand a year. Yay. Yay. <laughs> no. <laughs> Didn't work like that. Yeah, I came crashing down to earth. And, and I guess after that, it was just realizing that I've always had this talent for seeing things a particular way, speaking a particular way, and not being afraid of being myself and experimenting. And I realized that the kind of the best career that that lent itself to was storytelling. Mm. So I guess that's it was like a process of elimination and finally not listening to everyone had these plans for what I should do, except me. And when I finally listened to myself, I was like, this is what I'm meant to do. And I think that's why even now I do different styles of, it's all the same thing to me. It's all comes down to telling a story. 
even right now we're telling a story. So I'm, I, I guess that's how it fell into place, if yeah. you like. Well, that's what this podcast is all about, people's stories. Right. In fact, the catchphrase was, um, or the subheader, if you like, was telling the timeless stories of London's hidden personalities. So I wanted to tell people's stories. It's all I enjoy doing. It's all I, after all, when people go on Facebook, and I don't know how many billions of people there are on Facebook, all we're doing is checking mm -hmm. up on other people's lives and stories, aren't we? That's true. In one way or another. Social we're just, just nosy buggers. Social media is the prism. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, low-key stalking is allowed. <laughs> <laughs> I see we both sort of um, went down the law, well, nearly went down the lawyer route. I went to law school. and um, How was it? Uh, well, I didn't, I unfortunately was at, I went, I did a law degree at Manchester, law right. and politics. And my father was a bar was a solicitor. Way. <laughs> and I suppose there was in the back of my mind possibility of going to, you know, be an article clerk to him and learn the ropes through him, but you had right. to do get my law finals. And I was uh, living with a guy who was very smart, very clever, and didn't have to work too hard to qualify. And so yeah. and he could drink as well. So every night yeah. he was out on the town drinking and I tried to keep up and I couldn't that that was me in school. I was yeah. one of those people. So I, I, I blame him, and then I blame my wife, who I started to go out with in those days, and she I, we got engaged, and I had to go and earn a living. Hey, wife. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I don't like to accept any responsibility for not becoming a lawyer. <laughs> it's everybody else's fault. To, it's to not be mine. honest with you, <laughs> being a lawyer is one of those jobs where you're always needed. But I don't think anyone likes any lawyers. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think it's one of those professions. <laughs> well, I, I like my dad. I love my dad. <laughs> uh, if, if, we have to, if we have to choose teams, I'm choosing the accountant before the lawyer. <laughs> so what was the first creative thing you did after? I mean, so what did you study at uni first off? Uh, Filmmaking. Uh, university, I did. Yeah. I did um, film with television and new broadcasting media. Bloody, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of words. Yeah. Let's just call it film and TV, <laughs> to okay. be short. Uh -huh. But it encompassed um, different methods of delivering story in a digital format. So you, we did web, uh, TV, and film, and we did the theory behind all of these things. And I will say this, and I know there might be students who are listening to this, but university wasn't very helpful to me. It wasn't very good to me. They didn't, didn't really do much for my... I already had this ambition inside and I already had the skills in my head. It didn't ignite anything. It didn't point me in any right directions. In fact, I kind of stumbled into finding myself as, as a creator after university. I went to New York briefly after I finished university. And then from New York, there was an opportunity to go to LA and study on the universal backlot. And that's what kind of reignited my fire as a, as a storyteller. Mm. So it would have been three years of, absolutely no relevance to what i do now honestly so you didn't stay the three years or you, i did you did but so i'm you, saying it didn't really do much for me it didn't sharpen my my toolbox it didn't make me see things any differently Were you living away from home i mean did you get the benefit no. of that sort of independence i i've lived alone since i was 19 uh -huh. so i went to kingston which was not far from wimbledon and it was kind of a continuation of me staying put in south london uh, we're getting some getting some weather now <laughs> <laughs> We're outside people and it's raining, but we are under a canopy, so we should be okay. Yeah, so it was, um, I didn't have the experience, it wasn't a change of a dynamic to, to go, I didn't go to university straight after college, essentially, I worked for a while. So it took around four four years between finishing college and going to university. So I was already quite mature, quite grown, and I think university is set up to kind of help younger adults mature, but it's not there's not a lot of pressure in the first year for example so it, it it's weird it's a very strange space and they don't know what to do with people who are already quite driven hmm. in fact you you'll find the opposite and again i can only speak on one university experience but it seems like it's all dedicated to everyone coming out with a 2-1 which is that's just not a great education system in my view well, our whole education system is, is, is an ancient one, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of built on Victorian <laughs> principles. You go down these very sort of narrow sort of silo style career courses. You know, you've got to do law or accounting or much. business studies or marketing, whatever it is. And it's never really sort of moved on into those who want to become creative. Right. They don't know how to identify people with social skills separate from people with academic skills separate from people with logistical Correct. skills separate from people who are pragmatists it doesn't know how to deal with these different types of people it says you must be one way and one way only mm. which is quite outdated if you yeah. ask me absolutely so 
you leave university and you go, you do a bit of traveling. So what did you learn on your trip to New York? Funny enough, and here comes the common thread again. <laughs> my grandparents were in New York. That's why I ah, went there because right. um, I have family all over the world, but um, America is, is one of those places. And my grandparents went up from Jamaica to stay in New York. And it's a shorter flight. And it was also cheaper at the time to go to New York. So I went there to basically reconnect with them. And while I was there, I was working on my first screenplay, which was Treehouse. I wrote that while I was finishing university in late 2013, well, beginning of 2013. And the lecturer who was responsible for marking it, he kind of rubbished it. And at the same time, he was like, he liked the premise. He compared it to a baby godfather is what he said. And I was like, oh, that's correct. That's quite cool. When I gave him the when I gave him the sample script, it was something completely different. He said, and he went as far as trying to trash my ability to understand the English language, which made which made me really, really, really mad. And the only reason he did that was because it was the last semester, and I wasn't going back to university, so he would never have to face me again. So I was quite, I wasn't broken, but I was like, I was a little bit disheartened. I was like, this was what I wanted to do, and you've kind of just crapped all over it so it was good to kind of be back in a familiar environment with my grandparents and then I brought my laptop with me got to work and then from there I ended up in LA a few weeks later and that was what kind of set me on this path to winning awards as a screenwriter and creating which is ultimately how I'm here right now yeah so your first um, screenplay was Treehouse yes, which correct. was a coming of age drama I yes. believe Wow, you have done your research. I try my best. <laughs> it's, an, it's unreleased so far, but yes, it was a coming-of-age drama about, essentially, it's about three generations, um, the Windrush generation, the generation after, and then kind of the generation that's my age. So, almost, again, I think that's where the Godfather comparison came from. Like, with the Godfather 2, you had the flashback and the present. This encompasses three generations, so it's a it's a bit more intense, but it's a television program. So it was written as a TV pilot, and it just told the story of the third generation, the youngest, who's now got the pressure of, you absolutely have to be something. So the first generation set a foundation. Second generation's job was to usher in the third generation and put them up higher. So this... Um, this child, his name is um, the protagonist. His name is Nathan Gale. He's got to find a way to make it work at a, a private a boarding school, if you like. High tuition fees, very well-to-do peers. So he's rubbing shoulders with royalty and, you know, sons of monarchs and all the rest of it. And he's got to kind of stand out in that crowd in order to be the one that carries the torch for the family going forwards. So there's that pressure. And then what happens in the first episode, and without obviously spoiling it because it's not been made yet, but... He loses his father and the financial burden kind of rests on his shoulder because he has a mother who she's suffering from grief and she has bipolar, which he doesn't know about. It's, it's, it touches on a lot of subjects. Absolutely. That, but at the same time, it's not written in an American style where it's just like everything's thrown at you and like it's paced quite. It's paced for pretty much a British audience. It's for us to. It's a story that's never been told here. I mean, but it's a contemporary story because yes. so much of it is relevant politically and you know, with the, with the wind rush and the, the mental health issues exactly. and all those sort of things. It, it's very contemporary and modern. And that, this was what I was working on when I was still in university. So was this something you did for your university course or this was something you you felt compelled to do and seek a commission for it later? Or what was the I, motivation I guess, behind it? So we had, we had a university, we had a, a, a screenwriting module. So what I submitted was a version of that for the module. But I was also mindful of something the, <laughs> the lecturer said which is he gets one great idea every three or four years. He's sitting in a classroom with 100 plus students who are giving him 100 plus ideas to look through. I became very worried. I was like, so when I gave him the premise, he was already like, ah, I can see what I'm like. No, no, this is no good. So I wrote a stripped down version of it for my university project. And I think that's what made him mad. It's because he didn't, he, he wanted it to go a particular way. He's already writing my story in his head. So, um, Essentially, after that, I, I scrapped that. That wasn't. That was like a shell of what it was later on to become. Hmm. But I had the. I already had the inspiration and the idea. This is what I was saying about university. If I had kind of been coaxed a lot more, helped a lot more, it could have probably been a fully fledged thing by the time I'd finished. But you know, the extra time did it good. So that's just sort of sitting on a shelf somewhere, maturing, waiting for a, an appropriate time to get commissioned and released well the question is always what have, what have you got what else have you been working on <laughs> yeah. and it, it, it's one of those ones that will be a conversation start to say look i've got this sitting there i've got a couple episodes of that written but i've also written feature films and i've written other pilots i've been 
I've made sure to keep my writing talent current. So let's go there. So you've written a, a couple of other, well, I think one was called femin, Femininity. I can't even pronounce it. Yes, Femininity. Femininity. There's a made-up word. Yeah, I know. I looked it up. I couldn't find it. Not even if the Thesaurus had it. Uh, and, and the boys are back. So Femininity is a, is a drama. It's actually, no, no it's, hmm. It's like an action drama. Uh -huh. it, it kind of bends genres a bit. It, it was my best Tarantino impression. Okay, maybe that's not true. But <laughs> <laughs> but I tried my best to kind of tell a story that wouldn't just be like, you know, hitting you over the head with emotional content. It's like there's actually action and people taking action and not waiting for other people to come and save them. And so it has action elements in there, which are like a reward for anyone who's there for the premise. And the premise is quite, it's quite dark. It, it's not yeah it's quite dark it's women that meet in an abortion clinic setting they've had their own experiences which have led to them being there and it's about them kind of banding together to kind of find catharsis against the people who have done them wrong the ones who have been done wrong and for the others it's more about kind of understanding that you know there are other ways of looking at the situation you're in if other people have had worse and they can keep going you can keep going it's really just a human story, but based on female characters and with, from differing backgrounds. Now, I can see where you get the, the, the knowledge from for Treehouse. Where did you get this sort of real-life experience for, uh, for this one? No, well, no real-life experience. I've never been a woman a day in my life. <laughs> well, no, but, but, but you know, associated with someone or, you know, an abortion well, clinic, perhaps. that's, yeah. So, I have heard stories, and it's funny, a lot of the stories came after I wrote Feminunity. So, I've, I've had this conversation with people a few times. When it comes to storytelling, you've got different points you can tell a story from. You can tell a story that you know. You can tell a story that you think you know. You can tell a story that reflects on a point of view you may have had that you've evolved. I told the best story I could trying to put myself in, in, the, in the shoes of other people. That's what I did, essentially. They just happened to be women. You know, and I've never been afraid to tell stories. My, my mantra for Written Mirror is truthful, fearless creativity. And then after writing Feminunity... I've come across a lot of people who have then opened up and said such and such and such has happened to them. And I was like, that's interesting because in the back of my head, I'm hearing a lot of similarities with what I've written. But then a lot of the criticism when I wrote Feminunity was that people don't tell people things. And I'm like, that's not true. People tell me things all the time. People I don't know, they'll just come up to me and be speaking to me for a little while and they'll open up because I'm quite an open energy person myself. So it, it happens. It's just that people don't want to believe that this stuff happens and then lo and behold me too the me too movement comes around and a lot of what i've written in femininity which predates the me too movement has come to pass i had the women in femininity wear black for a pivotal for a few pivotal scenes one of the criticisms was women only wear black when they're mourning i, I don't know what they were mourning at the well at, at, they haven't uh, met my daughter <laughs> who wears black 99 percent of the time <laughs> And I was like, you know, black is a color of strength. It's yeah. one of the colors in the Jamaican flag. And a lot of African flags have black in it. And I was like, you know what? Let me not even try that. And then the Me Too movement happens. They wear black. Um, where was it? To the, um, it was it the Academy Awards? Or, oh, yes. Yes. Right. The, uh, yeah. yeah. Time's up. They all turn the up wearing black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we go. Yeah, it's it a protest. It happened. I feel like it was. I think it was I've, the Oscars last year or a couple of years ago. I, I don't think it was... It wasn't the BAFTA. It wasn't. It was an, it was, I think it was an American I feel uh, like, award ceremony. But it was like but, a year and a half, maybe yeah. 18 months after I'd already written Feminunity. Uh -huh. So a lot of what I said and what it came, came up. And then a lot of the people that were doing it were actually high-profile people. And I was like, oh, well, looks like I can see the future. So where did you <laughs> get the idea from from that? Again, it's just... I get story ideas and, and motivation to write and try new things. And when it comes, I try not to really question it too much. Because if I question it, I just won't do it. I tend to just go with it. I get the inspiration for something. I call it inspiration, but something is whispering in my ears. Uh -huh. like, you need to do this. And I just kind of act on it and follow it as far as it will take me. So you, I'm being attacked by crows now. <laughs> 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 the rain stopped. Now it's the crows. I feel like I'm on a sort of Hitchcock set. <laughs> this is what happens when you come out with me. You should come filming with me sometime. Yeah. I hear lots of stuff like this. And then I, the dogs come up and they, they all want to be friendly. And yeah. So. I, no, it's cool. I'm waiting to go mudlarking with a, a previous guest on the 10. So this is all real real-time recording so these ideas that you get because it's so difficult to capture ideas i mean my head is full of stuff all the time and unless i write it down or i mean you can see even my notes to yeah. talking to you today it's only recently i've got this idea of doing these um these mind maps it's, it's, it's a I, beautiful I, idea by I, the way. I do it just to get it out of my head not even to necessarily refer back to it because half the time i haven't looked at these notes hardly at all as right. i'm talking to you 
But if you get an idea in your head, I find I have to get it out on paper for it to come to life somehow. Sounds um, sounds like there's a screenwriter lurking inside <laughs> there somewhere. Well, I do feel I've got a <laughs> watch out now. I do feel I've got a creative. <laughs> well, I do some creative stuff. I write a newsletter monthly, and I you know right. I, I do some bits and pieces. Not to your level, but I do feel there is a creative energy in me somewhere that that needs to come out. So, how do you capture your ideas when they when they come to you? So. Remember now, I go across different um, creative yes. spheres. So the the underlying principle is the same, which is, so I guess for me specifically, is don't question it too much, get it out first. So what you're saying about jotting stuff down is a very good idea because I give that advice myself. Put it down on paper or on a screen. I type everything because I, if I was to end up following my inspiration all the way and filling up a book and then having to sit down and type, that would probably kill me. Yeah. So I usually do it in front of a computer or I take notes on my phone and transfer it. But the idea is get it down on paper. You can analyze it, question if it's a good idea later on. Don't do that in your head because I used to write the perfect story in my head and <laughs> it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. You never sit down, you never write. You just keep on tinkering, tinkering, tinkering. But another thing I look for is if the idea stays. If I thought about something today and tomorrow I've forgotten it, I don't beat myself up about it. Something else is coming and it will stay. If it sticks, then that's what gets me to sit down and put it down. That's interesting because I often get an idea. I think that's a brilliant idea. And if I if I don't write it down or get it down, I've forgotten about it, as you say. Something else will come in. I think, oh, shit, what was the idea I had? It was a much better idea yesterday. Do you know what? I should have captured it. And sometimes the greatest ideas you have and the things you're most psyched about aren't the greatest when it comes to executing them and then the thing that was kind of like in the back of your head for a while that you didn't think was great that's the thing that you end up shaping into and that's really to me that was how kind of treehouse came about because i kept thinking uh but people might say it's like this or there's too much going on but it's still one of my proudest um working examples um for music is different when i have a song in my head that I absolutely must, I can't, I can't be content with writing it. I have to actually hear it out, so I have to make a, a, a reference recording. I don't really care what it sounds like. It could just be me talking through the lyrics and the melody, as long as I, because I have to be able to hear it back to mm -hmm. know that this is how it's meant to sound. Because you can read back your, your, your words when it comes to a song, and it's just like, that doesn't fit. Yeah. And it's like, why doesn't it fit? The reason it doesn't fit is because the way you paste it out and stuff has changed because you didn't, I've, I've messed up a, f a good few songs doing that. So yeah. my process now is visual proof of what I'm doing. So if it's a story for a script, it's to have the, the, bait, the skeleton written down. If it's a song, it's to put it down and then have a recording that kind of takes in the, the rhythm and melody of what I'm saying. If it's for filming, it's to go out and just test film. So if I was going to shoot here, for instance, I just come over with my camera and set up and shoot something and see how it does it look how I want it to look. Yep, great, cool. We can we can press forward and I can see it in my head now. And I think you know people say I think people have a few um, theories about once your mind can see it and it kind of finds a way to make it all connect and go together. I I don't really overcomplicate my process by thinking too much about it. I just know that I'll see an idea, I'll go with it, I'll follow it, and it usually turns out all right. But if I overcomplicate and overthink it, that's when I'm doomed to not, I, I just won't, I'll, it'll be analysis, paralysis by analysis. Yeah. I won't get anywhere. But do you find there's certain things you do, certain tactics or strategies you use to get you in a more creative sort of frame of mind? I'm Meditation, see, for example, I, or being in a lovely space. Yeah, so I was going to say, and this is not to sound arrogant or anything, but because I've got a mixed diet of all this stuff going on, I don't suffer from burnout. So I don't generally find I'm not motivated because I'm always, so I'd be out filming in a, an outdoor space like this, which like you say, the kind of meditative and the present calming experience, I experience that as part of what I'm doing with the music. It's writing something and then putting it out there. And when you hear it, there's something very cathartic about, you know, you hearing your own words and it forming into a song and then there's melodies mm. to go. And it, it's beautiful and it's nice. A lot of this stuff is good for your soul. So by not limiting yourself to one sort of thing like writing or songwriting or yeah. filming, you get this sort of cross-pollination, if you like, of different skills and thought processes. I would say so. That's yeah. a nice way of summing it up. It's, it's really about, yeah, having a very creative diet and then allowing that to kind of ease your mind and keep you like sustain your spirit kind of thing and then realizing when it's time to kind of take a step back and take a rest i'll probably i'm more likely to feel tired than not inspired 
and I very rarely feel tired. So I'm always inspired. Yeah, that's that's it. Because just put down a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> inspired, not tired. <laughs> no, I like that. <laughs> Hang on, let me make a note before I, before I forget. <laughs> just write that one down. Inspired. <laughs> uh, because writers writers block is you know famous for for killing most people's good ideas who mm. want who want to write anything. But there's there've been so many books written on creative writing and you know getting ideas down yeah. but because you've got these as we say this crossover of of skills skill sets basically you, you're never without something to to be getting on with i suppose i could just point a camera somewhere yeah. start filming something the words will come to me i i don't some so i film a lot of my stuff live like this but other times i could just film something and then add the words on afterwards so it it's Everything feeds into the creativity when you're doing a lot of different things. That's not to say you can't be great doing one thing and practicing one thing. I, I don't want anyone to, to, you know, to, to throw whatever device they're listening to, <laughs> listening to this on out the window. Like that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is it allows you to not pressurize yourself so much because you have other outlets, and those outlets kind of inform all of your talents. Mm. That's my kind of view on it. Yeah. So. The third screenplay script you wrote was yep. "The Boys Are Back." Is that correct? It was, I, the, it, was, it was. It was the third one that I've put out there that's won awards. I've written so many scripts that I haven't seen the light of uh, day. The third award-winning script, yeah, shall we say, yeah, which that, was a comedy, that, as I yeah, understand. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. You never know who could be listening. I'm always <laughs> right. Let me say this again. I'm always writing. Okay, um, the boys are back. There's a story behind this. I had a car accident in the end of 2016. I was feeling quite, quite low because physically i wasn't myself um someone ran into the back of me it shook me up my flexibility was was a myth i wasn't as independent as i'm normally used to being i've lived alone since i was 19 so um it was a very kind of dark time for me and i was like well you know what i'm gonna just take this and turn it upside down and i wrote a comedy the comedy is the boys are back and it was about like friendship but it's friendship between four guys and there's nothing it's it's a a true friendship that's really the underlying thing about it and it did really well but then when it came to okay let's push through and try and get this commission somehow it was in them it, it suffered from there's calls for a lot of diversity behind in front of behind the camera and you know women in women in writers rooms and i understand that but this this the boys are back they it just happened that the characters are four men the idea is friendship friendship is not uncommon against humans mm -hmm. no. even against animals <laughs> like it, you know i was like it it's not that it's just that they're four boys and i don't think i've i've not seen i've not seen four friendship amongst men that you know without terms being thrown in misogyny mm. toxic masculine this mm. I've just kind of took that and threw that all out and was just like, these are just four, four so are guys. are you saying you got pushback on this because of the concept? Uh, the pushback is that it's just four men. Like, oh my God, there's no women. Uh, there are women in it. Like, women do appear in it. Like, right. it's, it's not like, oh my God, they go, to a, they go to a shopping mall and there's no women. I took all the women out. Like, it's nothing like that. It's just people choosing to see what they want to see. Cool. It's funny. It's funny. And it made me laugh and it brought me out of a place there where I, I felt very much, I wasn't, I was a shell of myself. And that's how I wrote it. And it won awards. It was winning. It was outperforming all my other um, screenplays. So what awards did you get on that? I, I, how many awards did I, I think I won, the most amount of my, I've won 30 odd awards. And I've, I think like 10 or 12 of them were from, were from the boys are back. It was, it was ridiculous to me. I cared so much. Like we spoke about Treehouse. Treehouse means something to me personally. Femininity was about something that's very serious and topical. This was lighthearted and just kind of to pull me out of a dark place or a place where I wasn't my feeling like 100% of myself. And it did the best out of all of them. So it's, I would say it's that in itself is tough to, to write a comedy when you're in a dark place. Normally people would write something a bit more sort of dark and morbid perhaps. Yeah, so... I was originally supposed to write a comedy, but when you write comedy, they pigeonhole you and say you can't write drama, which is ridiculous because if you can make people laugh, it should be easy to make them cry. People say it's harder to make someone laugh than cry. If you can already make people laugh, you should be able to make them cry. Mm. And if you can make people cry, you should be able to make them laugh because there's always comedy even in tragedy. Well, absolutely. So I, yeah, I just, my mindset was to, I wanted to get to a happier place, write something happier. <laughs> There you go. No, <laughs> go live in that world. Yeah. I was just thinking of something that makes you laugh and cry. I mean, very recently, there was a fantastic drama series on, was it on Netflix? I think it was Netflix. Uh, Fleabag. I don't know if you saw that. No, I've not Fantastic, seen that. which was, which was hysterically funny. 
in a dark, humorous sort of way, but mm. also tragic, which made you cry. I mean, we were sitting there in fits of hysteria and you know, <laughs> floods of tears, you know, intermittently. I, I can't remember what film it was I was watching. Was it? Is it? I feel like it's melancholia. It's like an absolute, that film, made, there was one part that made me laugh. <laughs> Go out and see this film. I, I, think, I think the actual film in totality is horrible, but the part that made me laugh was where the guy was like realizing that, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but the world's coming to an end. Uh-huh. And <laughs> The way he processes this is to go and go out to the horse shed and kill himself. <laughs> and I just, it was just like, it was the only moment in the film that like spiked like my, my interest because I was like, I wasn't expecting that. No. And that's what comedy is. It's like, we know bad stuff happens. We know boring stuff happens in life, but how often does something exciting happen or something that subverts your expectation in a funny way? And that's comedy. Yeah. Well, we'll come on to what you're working on in a minute because um, that's still a, I don't know if that's a work in progress or is, what, actually, let's, let's do it now. Mm-hmm. The jam. Let's talk about the jam now. What's hey. going on with that? The jam. What's going on with it? <laughs> a good few things. Um, so the jam for anyone that doesn't know is a feature length documentary that I, you can say I wrote as much as you can write a documentary, um, edited, at, well, directed, edited, color graded sound scored i did the whole thing i did the soundtrack as wicked penman that was my songwriting and recording artist debut and it's currently on its film festival um campaign if you like um so it's at the festivals which is a shame which means i can't really show it to anyone while people are battling for where it premieres um but essentially it covers my life story as a writer and creative what people thought about the career i was undertaking because it's again it's not one of those um career choices that many people grew up being told yeah you should grow up and be a mm. filmmaker no 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 you go and you like you say be an accountant be a lawyer be a doctor go and be something helpful we don't need any more filmmakers. so whose perspective is this from is this from yours or no it's from other people's from other people's perspectives yeah so you you get i appear in it my family appears in it so my mother my sister my uncle my sisters sorry my uncle my best friend and another one of my friends and my godfather's voice appears in it and i speak about my grandparents because they were in jamaica and i had budgetary um constraints so i couldn't afford to fly over and it would have been nice um to go over and get them into it but i kind of captured the essence of what it was and how they kind of helped me grow up stuff we kind of spoke about Mm. earlier and while also framing it from the point of view of with a lot of what we discussed about the writing process and the creating process. And so it's really like a standalone piece of work, which goes against the grain of how black people are represented in Britain. For once, there's a story where there's no estate life, no violence, no drugs. It's beautiful. It's shot outdoors. (laughs) Right. But the idea is that there's no kind of hoopla about it. And because no one, people want it, but they're not crying for it. You know, it's like one of those things where it's like um, that line in the in in the the dark night where it's like you know I'm the hero that people want, but the one they need or yeah. <laughs> wherever it is. Like, <laughs> yeah. So um, the jam is doing quite well. It's been premiered in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago, and it's going to be shown in Belgium, Brussels next in the next couple of weeks. Cool. And how did it go down in Vegas? It went quite well. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend, right. uh, being a filmmaker and all, <laughs> which is a shame. I really wanted to be there, but it, it went down quite well. People liked the music. And, and that's the thing. The jam is meant to grab you in one of two ways and then ideally in both ways. It's meant to grab you through, it, through the story and visuals or it's meant to grab you through the soundtrack. The soundtrack is quite outdoor and tropical while mostly being shot in the UK. So think about that for a moment because look how the weather looks right now. And we're in summer. Yeah, you wouldn't believe it, would you? If you saw my film, <laughs> I basically turned the uk into a tropical yeah a tropical island you're a miracle worker (laughs) right and that's exactly that's what it was meant to kind of showcase on a personal level it's that look people will think that you're complaining and you're not you don't have the requisite skills and that's why you're speaking out it's because you couldn't you couldn't hack it where i'm kind of showing in the jam i can hack it not only can i hack it i have got the skills here it is and I've done all of the major production roles on the film. I don't know anyone else who's doing that. So did you do, did you do this because it was a project you felt you compelled to do or because you felt you had a point to prove to others or to yourself? It was I was compelled to do it, number yeah. one. I had a lot of stuff going on last year around. I started filming around this time last year, in fact. Um, I didn't have any equipment. I didn't have any i don't have a team or anything on board and all i kept getting was people saying it can't be done it can't be done and i've been getting a lot of pushback again on my screenplays and so on and so forth 
and a lot of the reason why I'm being turned back as a writer is they assume they now associate writers with filmmakers so they're expecting someone who's directing something to also write but if you're a writer who hasn't directed something they're less interested in you even though you're showing that you specialized in the skill of writing which should open up directing it comes down to this pigeonholing again, it, doesn't it exactly so i was like okay do you know what let's let's end let's end the debate right now i'm going to tell this story and it's a story i've been wanting to tell through my screenplays but seeing as my screenplays aren't seeing the light of day i'm going to you know, do it as a documentary and kind of tell the story for real. That's how kind of the jam came about. And yes, in, in some on some levels, it's to prove people wrong. It's to say, look, I can if I can do all of this on my own, what could I do with a framework and, and you know, like a team behind me and an infrastructure? It's it's kind of that, but we'll see where it ends up and if people are going to continue to play blind to the fact that I, I try to do this at a very high level. And I'll say try because I'm sure there's someone out there that does it better than me, but good luck finding them. Yeah. Well, no, there's always potentially someone out there who can do an aspect of something better than you. And, you know, if they do, well, you just hold your hands up. But you've, exactly. done, you've done every element of it yourself. Exactly. Even the marketing of it. I mean, I, I, I've read somewhere that you don't even have an, an agent. No agent. If you're listening, come and get me. So, how, I mean, seriously, how do you find the time? Because we haven't even touched on your, your books that you've written as well and the poetry and the, the, the blog and the vlog that you keep up to date regularly. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is actually documented. You can find this out about me. Supposedly... I'm a member of what they call the sleepless elite. I don't sleep a lot. I think yeah. that's how I find the time. I, yeah. I really squeeze the juice out that, of a I know day. I that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there. What is sleep? What, why do people need it? <laughs> what does it do for you? So you're, you're the guy up at two, three in the morning writing and exactly. editing. Editing, listening to music, writing melodies, mm -hmm. all of that. I'm doing, so I spent, and again, I don't know if it's, maybe it's one of those things where maybe if a lane opens up, I might be able to take my foot off the gas but right now I, I'm, I, I don't see any danger of me slowing down I'm really hitting my groove with everything that I want to do creatively and it's having the confidence now that the right people will naturally gravitate towards me mm. and I love the um, your website which um, you, you brand uh, written mirror yes so just tell us about that because that's where you post all your blogs and your vlogs and all your inspirational and motivational videos yes so written mirror started in 2012 july 2012 so seven years old now and uh, i was working at the olympics around this time when i started um written mirror as well what are you doing there i was a media liaison officer uh -huh. essentially a runner no <laughs> no 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 no, <laughs> no, no. I do you a disservice it's a, it's a whole it's a whole job let me let <laughs> me break it down job. for you it's a real thing <laughs> see what happened was <laughs> so i was at the basketball arena i covered basketball and handball so when you think of you're a football man, so you know at the end of a match where they interview the players with the boarding, the advertising, that is what you call a broadcast media mix zone. Right. What happens in the media mix zone is you'll have one side for the talent, um, sorry, for the players, another side for the talent who's interviewing them. In an Olympic setting, that's many, many broadcasters or many, many talent on one side and then the athletes on the other side. Essentially, your job is to be the kind of link between the talent, the broadcast talent and the athletes, and you're supposed to keep them flowing through the mix zone. So if you notice when you see, well, they don't show all the interviews, but the idea is that you flow through a mix zone. You come in on one end, you go out the other end. You don't want someone speaking to someone at the front, someone at the back coming back. To, that's not, that's a, that's a chaotic mix zone. So it's quite, it's quite a, a hard job because you've also not got to be, you can't be in the shot. <laughs> ah, right. <laughs> right. Okay. And there's all these cameras being yeah. put, yeah, you got to, Place yourself strategically and make sure that each broadcaster gets a certain amount of time with the athletes and you've got to keep them moving. But you've also got to keep them in the view of drug control at all times. Drug control always has to be able to see them. You also have to agree with the press attaches from the team who gets to speak to who. If you don't, if the broadcasters don't get in good with the attaches, forget it. You're not getting any interviews. You're not getting any content. So it's about kind of keeping everyone happy. And the broadcasters spend a lot of money for their broadcast positions. Uh, the host gets number one. So BBC would be right at the top. You always want to make sure you take care of the BBC. They're the home, they're the host. So they're the host broadcaster. So they might get four questions in two minutes, whereas everyone else gets the free and 90 seconds. But then you've got NBC, which is a big spender. So you've got to make sure they get their time. There's China, the Chinese network, is it CCTV, I believe it's called? They've got to get theirs. And then you go on and so on. You, you know, but if it's, if it's a game where other athletes are like 
the Brazilian team are playing. I'm going to make sure I make sure that the Brazilian team yeah. get their the Brazilian Which network. Sounds get quite their a time. sort of interesting job. I would have thought quite pressured. It's you know time focused. Well, that and I'm a huge basketball fan. So there I was right next to Kobe and Westbrook and Durant and LeBron and I was like and Carmelo and, and you like, got to oh, focus on your job. Not- <laughs> I, I can't I can't show any emotion. I yeah. can't show any kind of favorite. It was that was hard for yeah. me. So like. Oh, nice. They're right there. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. <laughs> and then Team USA women as well. I, I'm a big Candice Parker fan. Uh-huh. And yeah, I yeah, I was not starstruck, but I was like, I really wanted to be able to like reach out and touch them, but you can't do that. <laughs> oh, inappropriate touching. <laughs> not allowed in the mixer zone. Absolutely. So yeah, so we were going on from right. there to... Sorry, yeah. written mirror. No, that's okay. <laughs> on to I, written mirror. I had to break it down. You called yeah. me a runner. Uh, <laughs> My I would apologies. have done a run Clearly to go, run, to go yeah. if I could have gotten to the, the stadium to see Bolt run. I would have done that. Yeah. Um, but so basically with Written Mirror, it was about I wanted a sand pit somewhere where I wanted to try new things. I was originally mostly a poet. So I mostly wrote poetry, but I never showed my poetry never saw the light of day. To me, it was like the weakest form of my writing of all the things I do. Poetry is the thing I if I was to self rate, I'd rate that the lowest. And I was like, well, this is ridiculous. You got to put an end to that. So I started putting stuff out there on Written Mirror. And the idea is if I'm sitting down to write my poetry and put my posts up and update my website, I can't run away from writing my script. I'm right there. You're warmed up now. Like, get some writing done. So instead of telling the perfect story in my head, I was actually spending more and more time putting stuff down. And that eventually contributed to how Treehouse came out. And then it's kind of... (laughs) The crows are coming. Um, Then it's kind of spanned into helping other writers, helping other people with kind of inspirational content and just keeping it real about the stages of my career. Is that because people are showing an interest in what you're doing and how you're doing it or because you just felt there was an, you wanted to express how, how you go about your work? So there's always this misconception, if you like, that because you're a writer or a filmmaker, you're automatically doing well, you're automatically famous, you've automatically made it because people always tell me how proud they am of me. I'm like, proud of what? I haven't, I haven't really, I haven't even started yet as far as I'm concerned. And this was happening from back those times where I wanted to show them like, look, it still takes your support. It still takes, and if you have a friend that wants to do this, it still takes you encouraging them. And instead of trying to talk them out of it, I wanted to kind of be honest about the journey. I think really written mirror is what led to the jam. When I really think about it now, it was, you know, kind of taking all of that content, all that teaching and saying, well, look, if this is the the way of reaching people, which is through a digital format, which they can see, instead of asking people to read through these posts, then let me try and do that. So I think the jam and written mirror are inexplicably, inexplicably linked. Yeah, I feel that the written mirror is almost your way of holding yourself accountable to yourself. Yeah, by, yeah. By putting I'd, stuff I'd out so. there, and people then expect you to produce more and right. give more content, and therefore you you have to be creative. Exactly, and then. The thought book one and the thought book two, which is about kind of maintaining people's ambition and, you know, kind of helping them on their journey to their goals. Let's come on to thought book one and two, which you kindly brought copies with because I said I wanted to buy them. Yes. So just talk. So these are two books uh, in amongst everything else. Um, people, Jay decided to write a couple of books as well. Hey, He's got nothing else to do. <laughs> two, three in the morning. Do you want to read the, the inscription? Uh, let, okay. So I'm just opening up um, the thought book. This is the thought book one. So in sub title is thoughts that drive and reassure you on the journey to your goals and I, wanna, I, I love so would you call this a self-help book in a way yeah so steve i hope this is the inscription on the inside steve i hope you find the the perfect quote from this imperfect book may it offer exactly what you need when you need it enough talk enough talking <laughs> not quite <laughs> enough talking please enjoy see page 62 and 63 and that's it Joe. we're out we're cutting it out now <laughs> So shall I cut to sixty two and sixty three? Oh uh, yeah. That's one of the cool things I noticed in your in your vlogs. Is yeah, that you, you, re- can, you read ad hoc. Yeah, I could literally just grab the book at any point and just flip to a random page, and for some some reason, there's always some kind I of relevance. Always relevant. So are, they, are these your own quotes, <laughs> these or these are, are quotes that quotes. you've curated from other people? I'm sure, like you know, they say like um, original thought is pretty much dead. Everyone's had some kind of idea. I, as far as I drew these from myself, I never researched them anywhere. I didn't go and look uh-huh. for other people. I didn't go looking for Churchill quotes and go let me throw that in. I wrote all of these myself. I thought of these all myself. And even the layout and how it's presented and the white spaces in the book, everything in it is deliberate. Wow. So 62 and 63, which Jay has um, drawn our attention, drawn my attention to. Uh, first one is, I'm, I love this word, I'm voracious. I'm valid. I'm quirky. If my aim is true, I'll hit the top shortly. Yes. 
<laughs> is this is this you talking about you, or is this for people to sort of so relate to themselves? So I I'm first of all capturing these um, thoughts, quotes, musings from myself, but then it's also to help other people on their journey. Other mm -hmm. people need to turn to a random page and see this and remember yeah. that you know you are someone and you are where you, you are headed somewhere. But then also those white spaces are you might see this and disagree with it. Write in what you think should replace that for yourself. When you turn to this page again, you don't have to necessarily pick up what I've written. You look at what you've rewritten as a result. Yeah, no, and nice. you, so basically it's taking me out and allowing the person to put themselves in the book. It's mm. a self-inferent book. So yeah. can we call it a self-inferent help book? Yeah, let's, let's do that. <laughs> and page 63, I'm ready, I'm relaxed, I'm grown. If my heart was a kingdom, my mind would be the throne. So it's about understanding that, you know, these dreams that you have, they're, they're leading you somewhere. And as long as you kind of keep your mind on achieving these goals, you'll never, you'll never really truly be able to, um, well, have people make you give up if you like. No, it's nice. You got to protect the, protect the kingdom and protect the throne. No, it's, it's, it's lovely. It's beautifully done. And the self-published again, it's not something you've done yourself by the looks of it. Yes. From start to finish. And this is in hardback. And this is the second more recent one. You've the thought, the thought book two. Yes. Striving leads to thriving. Which is uh, again in the same sort of. There's an inscription same, in that one. There's too. an inscription in this one. Let's, yeah. let's, oh, I've got a little note. I'll read. I'll take that after. So, Steve, the great city of London has my, known. Oh, my, my, um, my mic's about to break. The great city of London has known many uh, selfish and greedy people. It's great to know it also has those looking to give back. Fantastic. I love that. That's for you. That, that's fantastic. Thank you. Which is why we do your London legacy, which is all about people's legacy and what they're doing for, our, for each other and for our wonderful city. Soon as I, as soon as I <laughs> got wind of the podcast, I was like, I knew I wanted to be on it. You're a good man. And page 25, um, anyone in particular you're drawing my attention to Oh, here? this is just a whole page. If we all shoot I'm for the- I'm kind like that. Yeah, the whole page. <laughs> if we all shoot for the top, we can share each other's slipstream. Yeah, I like that. Getting to the top as part of a collective is great. You can share dreams, motivational ideas, and experiences. One hand washes the other. Hive mind and multiple eyes to see ahead. Now, these are great. I, I love these, and I love this sort of thing that just gives uh, a nugget. Yeah. It's, it's not, the idea is that it's not... Self-help books, a lot of them tend to be very waffly, I, I must say. I have read, uh, was it, Think Rich? Think, think yeah, and Grow Rich? Think and Grow Rich. Blimey. <laughs> you could you could condense that thing into probably twelve pages. <laughs> I, and no disrespect. I know it's a big time book and it's helped many people, but it's very it's waffly. It's one of the first self help books, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's very yeah. waffly, and you know, I, I tend I tend to be quite concise in when I think and when I speak and how I write and how I present things. So the thought book is kind of an an extended form of that. It's like I don't you know what will work best for you, and you can take the words and kind of you know um, transpose them into what will help you. And I'm trusting the person to do that. But with the with the thought book two, with the first one, they were like, well, we want to know how you kind of think and how you got here. And I wanted to kind of give kind of further um, insight in thought book two. So that's why you have the quote and then you have like a little anecdote or a little explanation mm. to kind of go with it. Some, some kind of supplementary information. No, I love it. What, what's the feedback then on these? Presumably good. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done another one. Yeah. The, the, first, the, thought, the first one, the thought book, did really well. Um, it's rated five stars on Amazon. Um, you can get it on the Written Mirror website as well. Uh, it, was, it did really well. People really liked it. And then the second one is it's more in its infancy. But a book is for life, right? A book always outlives you anyway. I'm sure once more people listen to your podcast, they'll start picking up copies. <laughs> and I'll be a rock star. <laughs> but I never wrote it to sell a million copies. What I wrote it to do was to reach the people that needed it. So finally, there's a book where if you just want to cut through and get to the point and get to the part that applies or remind yourself of where you were or what it is you want to achieve, the thought book one and the thought book two are your, yeah. are your guide. And they're great because you can just like, literally, as you do, you just, just open it at any page and find something nice and inspiring. And so validated. many times I've done that on my YouTube videos yeah, and it's, it surprised really even great. me. I was like, hang on a second. Is this a fix? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to wrap up soon because we've been here getting on for an hour. So what, what, I mean, you've obviously got the jam that you is out that well hopefully is out there at the, f the festivals at the moment the yeah. the, all the indie festivles hopefully yes. you're going to get garner some um, some awards with has it got any awards it's, yet been yeah before? i think around seven i've got a lot of official selections i've been screened in miami vegas and it's going to be screened in belgium I've won a few awards in the uk but really i'm hoping london bfi I'm, that's that's what my fingers are crossed for if, if i'm hoping to finally get some proper recognition has it been British accepted soil. for the for 
BFI? Not sure yet. Not yet. You don't know? Not sure yet. I'm hoping so. For some reason, I uh, Europe and America gravitate to my content a lot more than the UK. Again, That's I think it's, it's not really odd. It's, there's a huge narrative to overcome about what black people can and can't do in this country and <laughs> still I yeah you know uh, and i think that's what kind of gets in the way sometimes they they either think something is not authentic because they've never seen it before or they refuse to believe it because it doesn't fit in with what they've seen before so i, I kind of think that kind of counts against a lot of what i've written and done mm. so you're trying to be a trailblazer in many respects for your art and your craft yeah and I've, i think i've said that i've said something like that in the book as well about you know people will say it can't be done until they see it done type of thing and and I'm, it's unfortunate because if I push through and I kind of break open this this door, other people won't hopefully won't find it as hard to kind of come through. Oh, but I don't mind that. It's just that it's a bit frustrating when the 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 pushback isn't necessarily. No, it's not even necessarily. The pushback is not objective. It doesn't. It's not anything that's helpful, insightful, or anything that's going to help me improve as a writer or creative. It's just purely superficial. Or people seem to forget that you can market anything really to a large enough audience and it will it will take root somehow and people just don't want to give something new a chance just strange yeah mm. so <laughs> well before we wrap up i ask all my guests at this point in the conversation if they could uh, tell us one or two places that are particularly important you know personal to them in and around london because we're all londoners and we all love london otherwise we wouldn't be uh, sitting here listening and creating yeah. <laughs> what we're doing here today so you're obviously from south london yeah, uh, I'm from South. northwest South London. I'm South. from I'm from the north. So, is there anywhere? Tell us where is it that uh, appeals to you that you can recommend to us? So, I live in Merton, the borough of Merton. So, I, I I spend a lot of time in Morden Hall Park, which is not far from here, actually. Well, none of anything that's in this borough is far from me, but it's quite beautiful in there. You got walks, you got the ducks, you got the grass, you've got play areas for the kids. You know, you you. It's really a relaxing place. You've got this American-style cottage house type thing as well. It's it's just very, it kind of lifts you out of, you probably don't feel like you're in London when you're mm. in that space, which a lot of people need sometimes. Another one of the places I go to a lot is Richmond Park. And again, it's huge. It's vast. You you, you can't explore of it yeah. in one day, I don't think. At least you'd be doing yourself a disservice if, if you tried to. You've got the deer. You've got the green areas. You've got your cycle routes if you want to cycle. Free parking as well, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're doing a good sales picture. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's just, it, it, it's, I think it's one of the biggest London parks there is. It's, it's a royal park. Yeah. yeah. It is beautiful and I don't it, go there nearly enough. I haven't been there for many years. And the air is fresh and you can always find, if you want, if you want solitude, you can always find uh, an area to be alone. I believe there's, a, is there a theatre or a ballet company? There, I haven't, me myself, I've never completely explored the park and I quite like that I, each time I try and go somewhere different within the park and, and do a bit of filming or relaxation, meditation. Another place I'd recommend, <laughs> and people are not going to be expecting this, is the Buddhist temple in Wimbledon. Go check it out. Okay. Uh, it's open, I think it's from 9 till nine till 5 or 6, um, Monday to Friday. I think Tuesdays and Thursdays it's open late. And you've got your yoga meditation. You can see the monks. Um you know, just be respectful and follow the dress code. I don't think you're allowed to show like your legs Short or anything. No shorts, knees, no, no nothing like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, but as long as you're, you know, you bring the right energy and the right spirit, they're more than happy to receive oh, fantastic. you. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, having just, well, we went, we were in Thailand, uh, Thailand last year, so all all into uh, Buddhist temples. So yeah. I haven't paid a visit to that one, so that sounds really good. So brilliant. So thank you very much for your um, your recommendations no and suggestions. And finally, how do people get in touch with you through social media and your website and so on? I was going to so say, forth? people generally shouldn't try to touch me. <laughs> <laughs> but should they, shouldn't they be willing and uh, desperate enough? No, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> should, should they want to find out all about the work that you do? How do they go about it? Uh, so the number one source will always be writtenmirror.com. And most of my content finds its way there, be it blogs, poetry, um, the books, my merchandise um, I wear. He's got a great range of uh, T-shirts, hoodies, hoodies yeah. joggers, shorts. It's all there. There will be hats soon. And also I'm on written um youtube.com forward slash written mirror. Or just type written mirror in the search. It should come up. Written spa um, space mirror. I have a channel there. All my content comes out there. I try to post very um semi-regularly and I also make appearances there musically as Wicked Penman. So um Instagram and Twitter at written mirror at one wicked penman. 
uh, and really that's re oh Jay Mullings on link on LinkedIn and those are the main ways of getting in touch with me cool. well once again Jay it's been an absolute pleasure thank Steve, you so much <laughs> thank you very much for having me I appreciate you coming down to Merton Abbey not at all whoop Merton whoop. Abbey South London in the pouring rain SW19 <laughs> <laughs> cheers Jay thanks thank you lot. very much every week here at Your London Legacy we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London based story we hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.